Well, as many of you know, I've been a fan of comic book superheroes most of my life. Uh, and in the world of superheroes, there's long been a debate over characters like Batman and uh, others who don't have superpowers. Is, is Batman really a superhero if he doesn't have superpowers? And I would contend, yes, absolutely, because what makes one a superhero is not the superpowers, but the superheroic deeds. But that's not really the point. Among those heroes like Batman and Green Arrow is one that's particularly famous in our uh, recent years because of the success of the Marvel movies. Tony Stark, you may know him as Iron Man. And one of the things about Iron Man is that he doesn't have any powers. He's not in himself, in his essence, any different than anybody else. Yes, he's extremely wealthy, and yes, he's extremely smart. But when bad guys shoot at him, he has no protection. Except for the armor that he wears that allows him to do amazing things. But it isn't him as much as it's the armor. Christians, like Iron Man, have nothing in themselves that is unique or special or different from the rest of the world. You and I don't have some special stuff that makes us holier or, or smarter or better than anybody else. We're not strong enough to stand up against the devil. We're not even strong enough to stand up against our own darker impulses. But... We've been given armor that allows us to heroically stand in the face of evil. It brings me to our core reality today for Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. The core reality is this. God provides all that is needed for His children to stand against the forces of darkness. God provides all that is needed for his children to stand against the forces of darkness. Now, this core reality is based on everything that Paul's been saying, as we talked about a little bit earlier, everything that he's been saying in this letter to the saints at Ephesus, to the church, applies to those who are in Christ. That, that's the caveat for the entire thing. The things that he calls us to, he's calling Christians to specifically. It's not a matter of uh, everybody in the world, you behave this way and you become a Christian. No, you can behave this way all you want and you're still going to fail. The keeping of the law cannot bring life. It can only govern behavior. But God gives life. And when God has, by the blood of Christ, adopted us, He has chosen us. That's not something that we work up. It's not something that comes from having sterner stuff than someone else. It's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. The faith doesn't save you. It's not your faith that saves you. That would be something in you. No, it's God's grace. His unearned favor given to us in Christ. And we take hold of that by faith. You can keep in mind the picture of a present, a gift that's been given to you. 
when someone gives you a gift, it's fully paid for. They're not giving it to you COD. Here, Merry Christmas. Here's the tab. That's not how it works. That's not a gift. When God gives us grace, the faith is simply receiving it, saying thank you, unwrapping it, making it our own. That's our part. And even that comes from Him. Not of works. Not of your own stuff. So there's no room for boasting. But in Him, in Christ, we are God's workmanship, His masterpiece, His magnum opus as individual believers, and more specifically in this letter, as the church built together into a temple where God is manifest in the world. We are His ambassadors, His representatives. We don't belong to this world. We belong to another kingdom. We are here on assignment with a mission. And with that in mind, we need to recognize that we are in a dark place. You can imagine with the headlines we've seen recently, the picture of a U.S. embassy in a hostile land. We are in a hostile land. This world is governed by the prince of darkness. And we all used to belong to that darkness. But in Christ, we have been rescued. We have been redeemed. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we have been given everything that we need to be able to stand against the forces of darkness. And that's what Paul is getting to now. He's established who we are in Christ. The fact that we are to live differently because we are in Christ. That difference in living doesn't come from us, but it comes from Christ. Us in Him, Him in us, us united with one another because we are all united to Christ. And the Spirit of God in us working out what God places within. Not us mustering up righteousness on our own. And now, Having talked about the Christian attitude of submission in all these different relationships, he comes to this place in verse 10 where he says, finally, after all these things that we've talked about, let me get down to this summary point. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, 
you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Father, as we open your word today, open our eyes. Let us not just gain knowledge, but let us be changed by it, that we might become more like Jesus because of our time together today. We pray this in his name. Amen. So as, as we look at these three verses, or, or four verses, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul's structured this passage as sort of a, a, a key uh, bullet point that will have several other bullet points under it. We'll get to the rest, the details of what he's talking about in this particular passage today, in this paragraph. I think the NIV has an unfortunate paragraph break, but nonetheless, we'll see how this shakes out. And we'll get to the details of what it means to put on the full armor of God in the coming weeks. But today, we need to understand that God provides all that is needed for His children to stand against the forces of darkness. And there are four, uh, four main areas that, that he's kind of broken this out into that, that hopefully you'll be able to see. First is the order itself. There's an imperative here. Then he gives us the clarification of that order. Then there's the reasoning behind the, the order and the clarification of it. The, the foundation of thought that explains why this matters. And then he wraps it up with a summary of what he's just said. So let's jump right into it. Let's talk about the order. First he says, be strong. Be strong. Now, when he's telling us to be strong here, this is a command, and notice the imperative implies that this is a choice. The imperative implies that this is a choice. I just heard a pastor discussing uh, recently whether God can command emotions, and many say, no, He cannot. Many say, yes, He can. I don't think that's really the point. The point is, when God is commanding something, or even if you were to interpret this not as a, a, an imperative of command, but an imperative of encouragement, I think command is more appropriate. But in either case, He is implying very specifically here that you have a choice about it. Now, you may recognize it doesn't always feel like we have much of a choice, does it? Hopefully, you can understand that spiritually, this truth, this reality, follows the same pattern that God has built into our physical bodies. One of the things that uh, <laughs> struck me when I was coaching at a, a local uh, or an area Lutheran school a number of years ago, is when we walked into the, the very, very small, small weight room. It's basically a storage room that we converted. On the door was a sign talking about strength. It said there is no substitute for strength and no excuse for the lack of it. And it might be easy for us to think, boy, I... I'm not very strong. I think this is one of the struggles of trying to build a physical strength culture uh, with boys even more than girls. You think you walk into the weight room and all of a sudden you're the rock and you're just lifting it. No, no, no. That's not how it works. You know how you get strong? You know how every person gets strong? Reps. You 
eat right and you do the work and you get strong over time. I watched Cole Graham grow up and when he was little, he couldn't lift trees. Now he can because he's big. But he didn't get that way overnight. It takes work. It takes reps. You have to continually do the work to be strong. And you don't start out strong. You become strong. And you become strong by choice. The imperative implies that this is a choice. It it reminds me, and maybe it reminds you, of Joshua chapter 1. You can keep Ephesians 6 marked. We'll be back and forth. We'll jump around a little bit today. But if you go toward the beginning of your Bible, after the first five books, you'll find the book of Joshua. Joshua is an interesting book. It marks a major transition in the history of God's people with the passing of Moses and now the entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Something strikes me about this. Joshua, there's no record here of Joshua applying for the job, going through an interview process, so that the people said, oh, wow, Joshua's the obvious choice. He was the obvious choice because God said Joshua's taken over. But it wasn't Joshua seeking out God's calling. And yet, notice what he says here. He's, he's giving him the leadership. And he tells them, now he's taking over from Moses. He's going to lead these people in. But notice, starting with verse 5, what he says. The Lord makes a promise with conditions to Joshua. He says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Okay, now, let's just imagine for a second. You're starting your journey as leader, doing God's work, And God, the creator of the universe, let me just say that again because I want it to sink into your head. God, the creator of the universe, says to you, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. You think that could be some big confidence builder? That's pretty significant. This is what God says. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now he gives the same imperative here a couple of times that Paul gives to the church. Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. The foundation for his choice, the imperative implies a choice, for his choice to be strong and courageous is not based on his giftedness. God doesn't say, Joshua, you are good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you and you'll be a great leader. He says, I'm doing this. Be strong and courageous because you will do the work that I've given you to do. Verse 7. Again, he says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful, here's the conditions, to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. 
Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, check it out here. God is giving Joshua work to do, even though God is doing the work. God is saying, there's a guarantee here, you will be successful. No one will ever be able to stand against you. But Joshua, as you are choosing to be strong and courageous in my name, understand, the way that you will get strong, the work that develops in you the spiritual muscles, is you must be saturated with my word. You must keep my commands ever before you. You must be diligent to take them seriously, to believe what I have said, and to do what you believe. This is how you will grow strong and very courageous. God didn't just dump into Joshua this magical superpower to say, Joshua, poof, you are strong and courageous. He said, Joshua, choose to be strong and courageous by saturating yourself, arming yourself, covering yourself with my word, with my commands. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. Don't turn to your own strength. Don't follow your own understanding, but trust me and do what I say. And you will have success that you can't even imagine. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Keep this book. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? He's, he's reiterating that there's a command here. I have given you commands, and here I am commanding you to be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, if you think for a moment that Joshua did not feel fear, then you're not really paying attention to what human beings are like. Right? In the words of the great 20th century theologian John Wayne, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. That's exactly what God is telling Joshua. You're going to feel fear. You're going to be scared to death. But don't be scared to death, because I got this. You get in the saddle and ride, and I'll take care of the rest. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid, even when you feel afraid. Choose to trust what I'm telling you and to keep my commands. Back to Ephesians. Notice, by the way, in Joshua, as he's telling him this, he repeats it, doesn't he? Over and over. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Be courageous. Be very courageous. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Why does he have to keep telling him? Because Joshua needs to know that he has a choice in this. Your feelings don't drive. They can if you let them. But that's like putting a three-year-old behind the wheel of your car. It ain't going to end well, right? There is an erratic nature to your feelings. Choose to be strong. This is what he says. Be strong. The imperative implies that this is a choice. Notice also, be strong in the Lord. 
in the Lord. The battle is not yours, it is God's. The battle is not yours, it is God's. In 1 Samuel 17, you don't have to turn there right now, but we see the story of David and Goliath. And David stands when everyone else cowers. David is the least qualified. Everybody else there is trained soldiers. That's what they do. And the giant Goliath comes out and he blasphemes God and he, he curses Israel and basically just talks smack and, and calls everybody out. And everybody's shaking in their boots. Oh my goodness, he's such a big guy. So God sends a shepherd boy. Everybody acts like we know how old. We don't know how old he is. But the implication is clear. He is young. He's inexperienced. He's not a trained soldier. He's a shepherd. And he's done the work as, as farm kids do. They do the work that they don't think they can do because daddy doesn't give them a choice, right? So he has to stand against bears and lions to protect the sheep because you don't want to show up back home and say, Dad, I got scared and the sheep got eaten. That's not good, right? So he comes out here and David, who's like literally three feet shorter than Goliath, says, what is the problem? You're all standing here while this dog is shouting down God and his people. But today, we're going to see that God doesn't win his victories with sword or spear. By his spirit, by his power. And David, as you know, stands forth and does what God calls him to do. And God gives him the victory. It wasn't David. I've heard people actually explain this way, that because of David's great skill with the sling, that he was developed over time. If you really believe that a shepherd with a leather strap and some rocks has enough skill to develop in himself superpowers, as it were, to overcome a giant champion who has slain countless trained soldiers then you are delusional. This wasn't David. It was God. All the victories that Joshua won with Israel, having brought out generation, a generation of slaves from Egypt, wandered around the desert until that generation is dead, and having to learn how to fight in the fight along the way. That's all they did was tend sheep and then walk around a desert because they disobeyed God. And now they have to fight the armies of the nations that God's driving out. You think it was Israel? Was it because Joshua was such a great leader? It was because Joshua did what God said. And God did what God said. The battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. This example comes up later in Israel's time. Turn, if you would, to 2 Chronicles. Not quite as far back as Joshua because we're a little later in the history of, of God's people. If you find 2 Samuel and 2 Kings, you know, the Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, right in a row. Go to 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. This is the, the history of the kings of Israel. And in this particular chapter... Once again, we find the people of God shaking in their boots. I think I gave you the wrong passage. 
I did. Let's go to First Chronicles, sorry. Nope, You're, it is Second Chronicles. I just turned to First Chronicles. My goodness gracious. Slick operation here. Second Chronicles, the, the whole story takes up the whole chapter, but we're not going to look through that. But what we do see at the beginning is that the Moabites and Ammonites with some of uh, the Mayanites came to wage war against King Jehoshaphat. So people came and told Jehoshaphat, verse 2, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in the Hezazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Notice what happens. This is a godly king, much like Joshua, who was not a king but a judge. And as Jehoshaphat encountered this vast army that was beyond his ability to be able to deal with it, the first inclination he has is, let's inquire of the Lord. And he calls a fast for all of Judah, the people of Judah, came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek Him. And then we see this, uh, this prayer of Jehoshaphat. Jump down to verse, let's say, 15. In, in his prayer, Jehoshaphat says, Lord, we don't know what to do. They're too big for us. But will you not protect your people? Because we're, we're lost. So we're looking at you, God. In chapter 14, the spirit of, or in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the, sen, in the assembly. So the Spirit of the Lord came, came on this man and he prophesies in verse 15, he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Now, that's a powerful statement. It's not, hey, let me give you my advice. Here's what I think. Here's my opinion. This is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. And then, it happens. He calls them to march down and to, to take up arms, but understand that God's going to do the fighting for you. So they show up, they put on their armor, they go down, they do their thing, and they don't even have to lift a sword because the other armies kill off each other. They show up and everybody's dead. So the job that God gave them, because He tells them, put on your armor, get out there, take up your swords, and go stand against them. But God does the work. Their job, all that's left for them, is to gather up the bounty, to gather up the spoils of war. And there was so much plunder equipment and wealth that was left there that they couldn't get it all. They had to come back and make another trip because that's what God does. The battle is not yours. It's God's. Be strong in the Lord. 
Paul continues, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Notice this, the one who made everything is not overwhelmed by anything. The one who made everything is not overwhelmed by anything. There is nothing in your life that is too big for God, amen? It's too big for you. I'm not even going to say it might be too big for you. It is too big for you. Your shoulders are not broad enough to carry the load. So when people say God never gives you more than you can handle, they're not reading the scripture. God lots of times gives you more than you can handle. And very often, we choose, very often, we choose to take on more than we can handle by seeking to do things in our own strength, according to our own understanding, instead of trusting the Lord with all our heart. And we put ourselves under the burden that God did not intend for us to carry. Now, the scripture that they're misapplying and and misunderstanding is when we're told that he does not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle and even in that it's not that we can handle it but that god provides a way out when temptation comes but don't fall into the confusion of thinking god is only going to give you what you can handle or more specifically as we tend to to think it through that god's only going to give you what you think you can handle what you feel like you can handle listen this world is here to prepare us for the next god is stretching us constantly and everything that the devil does coming against you seeking to shipwreck your faith seeking to destroy you god is using to build you to bring you to himself Before you're in Christ, every aspect of your life, every part of your history is designed to break you. Yes, to break you. So that you will let go of the lie, the idol of your own strength and wisdom and understanding. And find yourself on your knees before the cross saying, God, save me. Help me. I don't know what to do, so my eyes are on you. And I need a rescuer. And once you have come to the cross and received him by faith, then everything else is designed to continue to build you into his likeness, to make you more and more like Christ. And yes, to break you. To break you from the idol of your own strength that even when you are in Christ so often desires to be worshipped. That idol of our own strength keeps on coming back, trying to get our attention, trying to drag us away from Christ, and we cannot be separated from Him. But we're often distracted. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by Thy great and mighty power. Nothing is too difficult for Thee. The one who made everything is not overwhelmed by anything. Job 42, 2, Job recognizes 
having opened his mouth and said, if God would just show up, y'all see, I'm, I'm not at fault here. I'm good. And then God shows up and Job says, what have I done? I spoke about things I didn't understand. Now I know you're God and no plan of yours can be thwarted. God is never overwhelmed by what we see as overwhelming. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. This is the order that God gives to those who are in Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in His power. Not your power, but His power. And then He clarifies it. The clarification starts this way. Put on. Put on. Notice, we have an active role in the Lord's battle. The battle's not ours, it's the Lord's. But He gives us an active role, as we saw in 2 Chronicles 20. God did the fighting for them. God won the battle. But He told them to put on the armor, pick up their swords, and go. Stand against the enemy. Because somebody had to pick up the goods to take home. God will deliver us, but we have an active role in the Lord's battle. The negligent soldier can expect neither victory nor protection. With two sons in the military right now, with all that's going on in the world, this stands out clearly in my mind. One of my sons is in a combat position and is not uh, currently deployed. His former unit is, and he's in a different unit now. As a dad, I'm not sad about that. But he receives training and equipment. Every day that he's been in the military has been about training and equipment. The weapons, the armor, the gear that you have to wear, and if he neglects his training, or if he neglects his gear, he can expect neither protection nor victory. The same is true for us. While the battle is indeed the Lord's, he requires us to prepare to take hold of his, of his provisions for our victory, if we neglect our discipleship and fail to do the things that lead to the experience of victory in Christ, we ought not be surprised by the results. It's not enough to know that God provides. We must also act on it. We have to choose to be strong and courageous. We have to choose to put on what God provides for us. What are we to put on? Put on the full armor. The full armor. Notice this. We must use all God provides for our warfare. We must, provide, we must use all God provides for our warfare. In other words, don't go out partially dressed. Makes sense, right? You wouldn't do that in the morning. You go out, you go to work. Oh, I forgot my pants today. Don't do that. People frown on it. How much more so when we're talking about the armor that actually provides protection? The armor that saves your life. 
Now, if you were on a SWAT team or if you were you know, in Kabul right now and, and you go out and you don't put on your Kevlar, you can expect that you are not protected. Why is it as Christians we are so neglectful to put on the full armor of God? We think, you know, I went to church Sunday. I got enough. I got some of the armor. I, you know, I've read the New Testament. I've, I've got some of the promises of God. I think I know, but I don't know if I really know. Oh, I, I, I've been through a Bible study on that book of the Bible. I don't need it again. I know God well enough, I think. And we wonder why we struggle with our faith. We wonder why life overwhelms us so regularly. Because we're going into battle partially dressed. We need to put on the full armor of God. We must use all God provides for our warfare. The extent to which we neglect or reject part of God's provision or our knowledge of it, to that extent, we will remain unprotected and live without experiencing the victory Christ has already won for us. We can remain on the winning side all the while living as if we were defeated. Again, in combat terms, I can live defeated because I go into battle unprotected. I did not bring my gear. I'm partially dressed. So I end up cowering behind a rock, hiding, not carrying out my mission. And I survive it, perhaps. And my unit maybe wins the battle. I'm still a part of the unit. I'm still on the winning side. But I didn't experience that victory. I didn't walk in that victory. As Christ followers, you cannot lose your salvation. You can't unearn what you didn't earn in the first place. And no force outside of God is stronger than God to take you from God. But He's given you an active role in His battle that He fights. And Christ has already won the victory. All the work has already been done at the cross. There's nothing really left for you to do to secure the victory, but you do need to show up fully dressed and prepared for whatever He asks you to do. If not, you'll still be on the winning team. But you haven't experienced, you haven't walked in the victory that He has given you. Pursue the fullness of knowing Christ. Saturate yourself with the promises of God in His Word until there is no part of you that isn't covered, filled, and even overflowing with Him. Put on the full armor. He finishes the thought. Put on the full armor of God. Of God. It doesn't matter if you put on armor if it's not the armor of God. Let that sink in for just a moment. 
There's lots of different ways that we try to arm ourselves, to gird ourselves up with protection and strength. We pursue lots of answers for how to get through this life, how to have our best life now. We do lots of things. But we do it from a human perspective. Anthropocentric, human-centered. That's not what we're called to. He says, put on the full armor, not of the experts, the scientists, the academic elite, the government, not even the preacher, the church leader. Put on the full armor of God. Notice this, the world's best is useless in this battle. The world's best is is useless in this battle. Turn to Psalm 20. Quick tour. Psalm's easy to find. It's in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 20. As Brad read for us from Psalm 121 earlier, we are still in Psalm 20. Don't let me lose you. But as he read for us from Psalm 121, we we see this idea of looking to the mountains. But my help doesn't come from the mountains. My help comes from the Lord. We have a tendency to look to the mountains, to look to our understanding of strength from our own senses. Our understanding. I need to lift my eyes up past the mountains to the one who made the mountains. It's from God that our help comes. Notice, in Psalm 20. Looking at verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. You're looking at the strength of the army. Chariots and horses are symbols of strength. Military might. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, speaking of Israel, those who will hang their hat on God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Flip a few pages, uh, more than a few, but to to Proverbs 14. It's the next book. Just a, a short little piece here. I want you to see it. Proverbs 14, 12, it's repeated in chapter 16, verse 25. I want you to see it, and I want you to connect it with what the psalmist writes. Some trust in these symbols of strength and might, but we trust in the Lord our God. They fall to their knees. We rise up in victory. 14, verse 12, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. We're going to be given lots of answers in this life. Lots of things that that we need to know, that we need to understand. We're going to be told that therapy will help. Self-help books, leadership principles. There's a lot of places where we can go to find strength. And it sounds right. It even might seem Christian. 
A lot of the prosperity gospel falsehood sounds good, but it's rooted in the flesh. In Colossians 2.23, Paul says, such regulations trying to deal with all of our stuff from, the, from a human perspective, from the rules of this world, these things, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Any real value is lost in these things that appear so good. Therapy, life coaching, medicine, leadership techniques, all these things can, can only deal with surface issues. Now, there is benefit to personal discipline. Don't be mistaken. There is benefit to technological advancements in modern medicine and all of these other human things. But if we see those things as the answer, we have misunderstood the problem. They sound good. But in themselves, they lack power and lead to destruction. That's not to say that you should not utilize them to assist in getting to the spiritual root of things. If you need to take medicine, take medicine, right? The, the, the discipline that you can learn in basic military training is useful in many areas of life. When you hear a, a Navy SEAL in a podcast say, get up and make your bed and it sets the tone for the day, that's a good habit. These things are good and if they set the table for you to be able to clear your mind and order your thoughts so that you can deal with reality in the spiritual battle that we're in, great. Use them to that end, but don't be confused by thinking that these things are the answer. They cannot ever be. The world's best is useless in this battle. He gives us all of this, put on the full armor of God for a reason. So that you can take your stand. So that you will be able to take your stand. Mark this down. We must engage the enemy intentionally and with purpose. We must engage the enemy intentionally and with purpose. Now, this is not to get into the whole demon slayer kind of movement where we're going to go out and assert our glorious power over the, over the demons. Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons obey you when you cast them out. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's, that's what matters. Don't go chasing after all of these other dramatic things but we must engage the enemy with intentionality and purpose. As we look to 2 Chronicles 20, the Lord called them to arm up and to take a stand, but God did the fighting for them. They still had to obey and to stand up. They had to intentionally and with purpose go and obey God in the face of the enemy, ready to do whatever He called them to. And in that particular case, sometimes He did have them fight. In that particular case... He didn't. He just had them carry stuff. You show up, observe my glory, carry stuff out. But they had to engage with intentionality 
and with purpose. Christ has conquered sin and death for us. He has conquered sin and death on our behalf. The Lord has already won the victory, and the devil is a defeated foe. Nonetheless, God has called us to take action. He has called us to take up arms and to actually walk in the victory He has given. As in Jehoshaphat's day, God does the real work and commands us to gather up the plunder, to claim the victory that He has already accomplished for us. So put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. And you take your stand against the enemy's schemes, against the devil's schemes. Notice our enemy wages war strategically. Our enemy wages war strategically. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we're not unaware of the devil's schemes. And he says this in the context of forgiving. When you forgive, we forgive, because we're not unaware of what the devil's trying to do. He has a strategy, and we get it, we know it, we're aware of it, and we will fight it, but not with weapons of this world. We have a different warfare. We're not part of the carnal war. Our weapons are different. Understand, our enemy wages war strategically. The devil is a liar and a bully. He works to deceive, discourage, and distract us. John 8, 44 says he's a liar and the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 points out that he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see what is right before their eyes. 2 Corinthians, uh, 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 yeah, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, talks about the devil masquerading as an angel of light bringing false teaching into the church. He's a liar. He wants to deceive us, just as he did in the garden with partial truths. And I think we all know a half-truth is a whole lie, right? So if I can come in and say something that sounds good, that sounds wise, that sounds godly, even sounds like Christian teaching, but with a twist to take you above the line or below the line of what God's Word actually says. I can completely distort the truth. And while you think you're drinking in the clean, pure water of God's Word, it is polluted. The devil works to deceive, discourage, and distract us. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. He keeps reminding you of your past to tell you you're not good enough for God. Amen. I'm not good enough for God. Praise God, I'm saved by grace and not by my works. I'm trusting in the work of Jesus and Him alone. There is no other way to have a relationship with God. Don't listen to His lies. Though the enemy is powerful, skillful, and strategic, when we suit up with the full armor of God, he makes us fully able to stand against whatever the devil brings against us. Remember, God provides all that is needed for His children to stand against the forces of darkness. After giving us the order and the clarification, He gives us the reasoning for it. Here's the thought behind it. Why does all this matter? Why do we put up 
put on our armor so that we can stand against the devil's schemes? He starts with, for our struggle. For our struggle. Notice, we, the church, we are united in the same war. We are united in the same war. Every single one of us who belongs to Christ, every one of us is engaged in the struggle. And the struggle, as they say, is real. But it is our struggle together. You're not alone in it. Our individual daily battles are not simply our own. They're part of an overall strategy against the body of Christ. And God has given us one another. We fight together. That is a theme throughout the book of Ephesians. Over and over and over again. It's the church. It's the church. It's the church. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. If you think that you can have Jesus and not the church, you're not paying attention to Jesus. Because he says it's the church. Paul says it's the church. Peter says it's the church. The entire Old Testament builds together the corporate idea that God deals with his people both individually and corporately. If you are separated from the body, then you are just like an amputated body part. How much life is there in that? Connect. We're in it together. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Notice, the enemy wants to keep you fighting the wrong battles. He's here to, to deceive and distract and discourage, and he wants to get your attention on the stuff that isn't real but seems real so that he can keep you unengaged from that which is real. The enemy wants to keep you fighting the wrong battles. The struggle isn't what we generally think it is. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not earthly, physical things. If our enemy can distract us with human anger or anxiety over earthbound issues, then we'll not be engaged in our mission as ambassadors. He can't take us out. But if he can convince us to spend our time and energy on earthbound battles, we can't spend that time and energy doing gospel work on behalf of God's kingdom. And we will fail to fight the spiritual battles. It's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. But against spiritual forces. Paul details this against the rulers and the authorities and the powers in this dark world. Now, these are not separate things. I, I, I heard someone who I think was getting way off track teaching that this is about fighting the man, fighting this oppressive, overreaching government and all these different things. That, I think, is a gross, gross misapplication of this text. Because Paul's not talking about Caesar. In fact, if he were talking about Caesar, then he wouldn't have said to the Romans... Roman, to the Roman church, Romans 13, submit to every earthly authority. He wouldn't spend so much time in the passage just prior to this, in Ephesians 5 and 6, talking about submission. If this were about ungodly, earthly authority figures, he wouldn't say, slaves, submit to your masters. That's not what he's talking about. 
But he's established in chapter 2 of Ephesians that this world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. There are spiritual authorities operating in this world. And we are fighting against spiritual forces in the spiritual or heavenly realms. We need to be aware of that. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Notice this, your struggles are part of a greater spiritual war. Your struggles are part of a greater spiritual war. What you're going through physically, emotionally, financially, when you have your existential crisis and you're not sure how to handle life or who you are, these things are part of the greater spiritual war for your soul. The devil wants to destroy you. He hates God and he hates those who are created in God's image. That's every human being. And he specifically, personally hates those who have been redeemed and are now God's children. And he can't touch you. He has no power over a believer except the power of a big mouth. If he can deceive and distract and discourage you so that you do the work for him, that's how he comes to what seems to be in the moment of victory. It's so easy to see other people as our enemies. That person did me wrong. I was unjustly treated. That person disparaged my reputation, framed me, betrayed me, cheated on me, lied about me, Fill in whatever situation you can come up with in your mind. But that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. That's where he wants to take us, is to thinking that other people are our enemies. If he can sow seeds of discord, anger, and hatred through temporal things, we'll fight each other rather than the real spiritual enemy. Now all this can seem pretty bleak and daunting, but take heart because God provides all that is needed for His children to stand against the forces of darkness. Then Paul gives us this summary. He brings it all together. Put on the full armor of God. In other words, suit up with all God provides for the battle you cannot avoid. Suit up with all God provides for the battle you cannot avoid. Like it or not, you're in it. The battle is real, and it cannot be avoided. So since you're already in it, be in it to win it. Bring all that God gives you to the battlefield. Be prepared, be protected, be strong in the Lord. Not in yourself, be strong in the Lord. Choose Him. Choose to stand with Him and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that when evil comes, as Paul says it, when, when the day of evil comes, and it will come. Notice this trouble, trouble will inevitably come. Trouble will inevitably come. John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you know the verse, you will have trouble. 
not you might, it could be tough, might be a struggle, you will have trouble, but what does he say next? Take heart. Because you're good enough and strong enough? No. Why should you take heart? Somebody say it. I know it's in your mouth. Jesus Christ has already overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Not you. I have. But if you are in me, then you have overcome in me. Put on the full armor of God. So that when evil comes, when? Now, a lot of times we look at this and we think of this as talking about end times prophecies and so on, and, and I don't think that's what he's saying. That doesn't seem to be the context that he's talking about. It could be. And, and believe me, rough times are coming. But very often in the day of evil, we're talking about, especially as we see it unveiled in prophecy, you're talking about troubled times. We just saw earlier that he says to redeem the times, make the most of every opportunity, because excuse me, the days are evil, the days are troubled, the days face adversity and struggle. You are in this battle. I think he's talking about right now. That the evil, the trouble, the difficulty will come. Don't doubt it. Put on that full armor so that when the day of evil comes, you can rest in the knowledge that Christ has already won and you're united to Christ. Trouble is inevitable, but so is your victory because Christ has already overcome this world. Put on the full armor of God so that when evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. You may be able to stand your ground. Notice this. You can stand up to the devil, but you cannot stand on your own. You can stand up to the devil, but you cannot stand on your own. You don't have to turn there, but in Daniel chapter 10... Daniel recounts for us a vision of a man who comes to him, pretty clearly an angel, an angelic messenger. He says, I was coming, but I was delayed 21 days by this, what is referred to as the Prince of Persia, what appears to be a spiritual authority, dark forces, very much like what Paul's talking about here. And I was delayed in battle with this prince of Persia until Michael came and assisted me. Michael the archangel. The enemy is powerful, so powerful that even this angel needed help. And even the angel, the archangel Michael, in the book of Jude, verses 8 to 10, Jude only has one chapter, we're told that even Michael would not blaspheme, interesting term to use, would not blaspheme the devil, would not revile the devil. He understands that there is a power and there is an authority. You can stand up to the devil, but you can't stand on your own. The enemy's powerful. You and I are not. But Jesus Christ is. And we are in Him. He told us at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We are in Him. The armor He provides is our superpower. You can stand up to the devil, but you can't stand on your own. Put on the full armor so that when evil comes, 
you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything. And after you've done everything. In other words, there is work you must do to experience Christ's victory over the darkness. There's work you must do to experience Christ's victory over the darkness. It's His victory. He's won it. It's already there. If you are in Christ, it's already yours. But you are probably not walking in it unless you are consciously putting on the full armor. If you are walking in that victory, it comes because you are developing and growing in discipleship. You're diligently studying God's Word. You're actively seeking out fellowship with other believers. You're not neglecting the gathering together so that you can spur one another on to good works and encourage one another. There's work you must do to experience Christ's victory over the darkness. God Himself gives the victory, but He requires you to get up, to put on the armor He provides, and to stand. There is no experience of victory without the diligence of discipleship. Let me say that again. There is no experience of victory without the diligence of discipleship. And after you have done everything, he says, to stand. That you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, that you may be able to stand. Those who stand with God cannot ultimately fall. Those who stand with God cannot ultimately fall. Deuteronomy 31.6, the Lord says, I will never leave you. Hebrews 13.5 says, don't worry about money. I will never leave you. Sounds a lot like what Jesus says to us in Matthew 6. Don't worry about money. God takes care of these things. Don't worry about all of the dangers in the world. God takes care of these things. We saw it in 2 Chronicles 20. As the Lord said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For this reason, you can choose to be strong and courageous because those who stand with God cannot ultimately fall. God knows you by name. He knows those who belong to Him. He finishes what He starts. Stand with Him and you cannot fall. You're destined to win. Last passage I'm going to have you look up as we close the service. Romans chapter 8. Some of you knew there was no way I was going to avoid going to this passage. Romans chapter 8. Starting with verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, to be made just like Him. That He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son. Think about that. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. (laughs) Who then is the one who condemns? 
no one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. God provides all that is needed for His children to stand against the forces of darkness. Verse 11 of today's passage is our memory verse. Put, all, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The battleground for this spiritual warfare is your mind. Your thinking drives your living. It drives your behavior. The battleground is your mind. The devil wants to capture your thinking by deceiving you, distracting you, discouraging you. He can't steal your salvation. He can't take what God has given. He can't change who you are in Christ. But if he can steer your thinking through that deception, discouragement, and distraction, he can get you to live a defeated life bound like a slave by the image and memory of shackles that were destroyed by Christ and no longer hold you. We're going to look at some of the details over the coming weeks, but for now, understand that all you need for the battle you face, God has already provided for you. Now suit up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have given us Great, gracious, wonderful, life-giving, irrevocable promises. Help us to seek you so much, to want you so desperately. Not, not just to want your blessings, Lord. Yes, we do want your blessings, and we do want your protection. But even more than these things, Lord, help us to want you to cherish the Son as most precious. Teach us in the midst of this present darkness to put on the full armor, to suit up with all that you've provided for us. Help us, Lord, in the midst of feelings that take us other directions to stand on the promises you've given us in your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.